I hope all of you, oh, are we there? Well, yeah, am I on? Good. Okay, sweet. Uh, I hope all of you, uh, again, I'll just remind you one more time before we get into the sermon proper, if you came late, will join us for our Thanksgiving service this, uh, this coming Thursday from 10 till we're done eating, 2-ish, 1.30-ish. Uh, we'd love to have all of you and spend Thanksgiving together as a church family, the family of Christ. The title of the sermon today is The Sovereignty of God. It's The Sovereignty of God. This is going to be our last week on soteriology. The past few weeks, uh, with the exception of last week when I was traveling away, uh, the last few weeks we've been looking through systematically at the doctrine of salvation, also called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We've specifically seen all five points of the Reformed approach to salvation known as tulip, T-U-L-I-P, like the flower, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. We took an extended time to do a, a type of introduction on, on how does somebody come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? What actually happened the moment you got saved? We talk about it a lot, but rarely do we slow down and look at the diamond of salvation. And so uh, we have done so from the Reformed approach. Today we're going to round it out. I'm going to add a letter, and so it's going to be multiple flowers. Tulips, the S, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Uh, that's going to be more of a shorter part of the sermon, however, because uh, we will spend eons, ages, meditating and realizing how massive and amazing and powerful is our great King of kings and Lord of lords. So that'll be a shorter part. We're going to do a first today, a first time that I've ever done uh, in a sermon series is uh, I'm going to spend a little time for Q&A, uh, not a live from the floor Q&A, but throughout the past weeks you have, uh, I've encouraged you to submit any questions you might have from the sermon series to uh, either write those in, email them to me, or otherwise get them to me. Uh, and I've gotten a few, I've gotten a few. I got about eight to ten total, which is not as many as I'd expected. Which tells me, either this is a new thing and you're not used to asking questions, option one. Option two, some of you are here but you're not here, huh? Option three, um, you have questions, you just don't want to ask them, because I can think of a million questions that could come up out of these things. Um, but I've got some questions and so we'll be doing, we'll deal with them. Uh, thank you for submitting those questions. So I'm going to take a chunk of time. Uh, and deal with a few of those questions, and, and then we'll wrap it up with the sovereignty of God. And we'll wrap it up with the sovereignty of God just in time for Thanksgiving, and see that we have much to be thankful for, and a God who gives all things. From his hand, we receive everything, life and breath and all things. So let's pray, and we will get into it. Father in heaven, you are great. Who is like you among the gods? awesome in power, majestic in holiness, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Truly, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of glory. You are the holy, 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 sovereign Lord of the universe. 
And Father, of your own hand, we offer back to you all things. And so, Father, thank you that you've created us and this world. And I now ask through the preaching of your word, through the foolishness of preaching, would you wean us from the temporal pleasures of sin and this world and enamor us with yourself? Would you do that, we pray. And Father, I want to pray that you would burn in our hearts over this series. Burn in our hearts a burden to know you, to make you known to the ends of the earth. Stir in our hearts not a coldness because you predestined, but a fire of confidence that wherever the gospel is preached, People will come, and you will save men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation for the Lamb. God, stir this fire in us. May it, may it spread to our families, to our friends, to the outer islands, and to the ends of this corner, to every globe of this planet, every part of this planet. Father, would you do that? And Lord, would you get all the praise, honor, and glory in the process. In Jesus' name and for his glory, we ask these things. Amen. All right. Let's start with our questions. We have, uh, I'm going to deal with three out of the ten or so questions I receive. I'm only going to deal with three of them um, because they're all good questions and we could spend all day on any one of them, but I'll, I'll deal with three and do my best. So here's, here's the first question we will deal with that I received. Question number one, do Arminians believe in original sin? Do Arminians believe in original sin? Now, if you're just visiting with us and you're just joining us and you weren't here for any of this, it's okay. All right, so uh, Arminian, for some of you, not Armenia, we're not talking about the country, we're talking about an Arminian. This is somebody who follows the teachings of Jacobus Arminianus, uh, who was a student of John Calvin. Uh, and so the question asks, do Arminians believe in original sin? Now, uh, let me just break it down in layman's terms. Most Arminians, uh, would be, this would be the counterposition to what I have been teaching through, and most would believe uh, Arminianism is well represented in our community. Uh, for instance, if you have ever been a part of a Methodist church, Nazarene church, Wesleyan church, uh, Assembly of God, Pentecostal, Word of Life, Word of Truth, uh, any of those other types of churches, they tend to be, they say tend to be, Arminian in their confessions, in their beliefs, in their practices. They tend to be. So if that that breaks it down, puts it on street level for you, they tend to flow from that stream. The other side of the stream would be, for instance, your Reformed, confessionally Reformed churches would be um, pre um, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Anglicans, and, and then I'll tell people Baptists tend to be like a swing vote. You can find a mixed bag amongst Baptists and tend to be where they align. And so, the question, do Arminians believe in original sin? Well, now we need to define what original sin is, don't we? This has probably been a while, and 
That might be a new term for you. So the doctrine of original sin refers not to the first sin of Adam and Eve. You might think original sin. Oh, they broke God's law, the first sin. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the result of the first sin, the consequence of the first sin. God created Adam and Eve not perfect. If he created them perfect, they would not have been able to sin. He created them upright or innocent. They were able to sin or able not to sin. They chose to sin. As a result, humanity was plunged into a moral corruption. We call that the fall. That condition, the moral corruption of humanity, is called or is what is referred to in original sin. And so, now we can answer our question, sort of. Do Arminians believe in original sin? The answer is yes. Almost all churches have to have some affirmation uh, or doctrine of original sin. So they do have it, although they would differ in a number of key ways that I don't have time to tease out, but I will tease out uh, a little bit of them. They differ in a few key ways, depending on who speak to and what, which flavor you're dealing with, uh, they may not affirm the notion of total inability. So, all people are sinners. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you were born, if you're here today, you have a mom and a dad, or somehow you came into this world, if you don't have a mom and dad, please see me after service. I would love to talk to you, okay? Uh, somewhere, though, you, uh, somebody gave you birth, right? And you, therefore, suffer the sin of Adam. You are all born sinners. Everybody has to deal with this. Now, they may differ in the doctrine of total inability. They may not think that we are so fallen that I am unable to respond to the gospel call. They might say man has a little as it were, island of righteousness left in him to respond to the gospel call. And so, some will teach different forms of this. Uh, the most popular would be they affirm original sin, they affirm total inability, and they teach some form of prevenient grace. They would say God gives this, this grace prevenes, it comes before uh, some form of God's grace that enables a dead sinner to hear and respond to the gospel. That's the most popular. It's called prevenient grace. I explained this a little bit on my sermon on irresistible grace, so if you weren't here or if you forgot, go back and check that out in our sermon archives from a few weeks ago to get more explanation of it. In all cases, in all cases, no matter who you're talking to or what you're talking about, but we're talking about Arminians and original sin, but no matter what it is, always spend time getting definitions. Always spend time asking questions, getting definitions, defining terms. Figure out what somebody means when they use a word or they explain their belief. Start with listening and understanding, and you will do well. Because this person might not use that term even consistently within their own belief system, much less with you. So make sure you're talking about the same thing. That takes listening and understanding. Sadly, our day is not one where people value sitting and listening 
well to others. This is not a day that we value the skill of being quiet and listening. We like to express ourselves, be true to ourselves, tweet about everything, post about everything. We don't like to sit and listen. See, we listen even when we do. We listen to formulate a response more than we listen to gain an understanding. This is a problem. Proverbs 18.2 says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Ouch. So, KBC, let's practice being those not listening to respond, but listening to understand where people are coming from, what they're saying, not thinking I'm hearing what they're saying, and asking clarifying questions, asking follow-up questions. Hey, you said this. Did you mean that? Or, oh, I heard this. Is that right? Can you correct me if it's right? Take time. It takes time. It takes patience. But it's immensely valuable. If you fail to do this, if you fail to ask questions and listen well, you will talk past lots of people often. And that's what will happen. So, take time, listen well, gain understanding, and then you'll be able to respond. So, answer to the question, do Arminians believe in original sin? Yes. How they deal with that, they go in different trajectories. Second question, second question. This is a good question. They're all good questions, but this is good Um, here it is. This is on irresistible grace. If irresistible grace overcomes and changes us, why do we still sin? If irresistible grace overcomes our rebellion and changes us, why do we still sin? It's a good question. Let me summarize what the doctrine of irresistible grace teaches in the event you weren't here or you don't remember. Let me summarize it. The doctrine of irresistible grace teaches that due to our radical rebellion and sin against God, and due to our will's enslavement to sin, God works in some to overcome their rebellion by granting them a new heart, which results in repentance from sin and faith in God's promises. God works in some to overcome their radical rebellion by granting them a new heart. You could add, I could expand this, by his spirit, and, right? but by granting them a new heart, enabling them or resulting in their repentance from sin and faith in God's promises. Remember our question. So if irresistible grace overcomes and changes that rebellion, why do we still sin? You got it now? We good? It's a good question. Let's answer it. The answer we have to say is that this work of grace restores the ability of men or women to make choices that are actually pleasing to God. This work of God's grace, irresistible grace, it restores your ability to make choices that are pleasing to God. Let me explain. Let's go back to the beginning, right? I want you to picture Genesis 
chapter 2, chapter 1, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, pre-fall, pre-sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. There they are, happily. Yay, there's Adam and Eve and the parade of animals, and they're all happy and good. And pre-fall, they had the ability to sin or to not sin. They had that ability. They could choose to obey God. They could choose to disobey God. Pre-fall. They chose what? To sin. Disobedience. They broke God's command. Post-fall now, the scriptures say uh, that, well, let me just read Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw, this is now post-fall, he's seeing these things. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Post-fall, there's a curse. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And dying, you shall die. Pain and childbearing. Pain for men. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat of food. Cursing the earth. Thorns and thistles it's going to bring up for you. The serpent on, the, on your belly, you will crawl all the days of your... Just curse everywhere. The reign of death. So post-fall now, now you have men and women. Post-Genesis chapter 3. Sin has entered the world. Post-fall, our wills are enslaved to sin, such that man is unable to do that which is pleasing to God. You could say they are unable to not sin. Hear that double negative? They are unable to not sin, which means all they can do is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the scriptures tell us. If you want more testimony to what that looks like, go and listen to the T sermon, Total Depravity. So post-fall, so pre-fall, able to sin, able to not sin. Post-fall, only able to sin. Now the new birth. The new birth comes about. You have a Christian who's born again. They have the ability restored to them at the, from the fall. They have... What's John 8 say? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He's actually talking in context there about slavery to sin. Whoever sins is the slave of sin. And he says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now, through the miracle of the new birth, the shackles of sin are broken. A new heart is restored. And the ability or capacity to choose again is restored. Praise God. Now, we can say the reborn sinner or the new saint is able to sin and able to sin like Adam and Eve. Paul urges believers not to sin since we are slaves of righteousness in Romans 6. But that's not all, is there? We have to look ahead, don't we? To the state that we call glorification. When Jesus comes again and we are forever in heaven with the Lord, our status will change. We will not be able to sin and able not to sin. We will be unable to sin entirely. Praise God. Can't you wait for that day? You will be confirmed in righteousness and a superior state than Adam and Eve because you have the greater, the second Adam, and in him all live without question forever and ever. Sin will be no more. You will be unable to sin in glory. 
Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's a good question. So what's the answer? Why do you still sin if God's grace overcomes your rebellion and changes you? Here's the answer. Because the drama of redemption is still unfolding in your life. The grace that drew you to Christ will bring you to Christ, and the day will come when it will overcome your sin entirely at the revelation of Christ. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a good question. He will. The day is coming when we will be unable to sin. His grace will radically overcome you and sustain you forever and ever. Praise God. Last question. Last question. Third question. This is a good one. You might think initially when you hear it, how is this related to what we've been talking about? But I'll explain. Are believers given spiritual discernment? Are believers given spiritual discernment? And I love the, the humble admonition or admission here, uh, and I think maybe all of you can probably in some way, shape, or form relate. They say this, the questioner. I used to think I had the gift of spiritual discernment, but it often led to being judgmental. Is this in part due to the noetic effect of sin? End, end quote. So, uh, is our believers given spiritual discernment? And is, uh, does uh, sometimes how, what I think many find is people generally who say, I'm, I'm discerning, often struggle with being judgmental or critical as well. And I think that impacts all of us in different ways and different levels. And so the question is, is that, is that a part of the noetic effects of sin? Now, I'm sure all of you came in here. Anybody in here know what the noetic effects of sin are off the top of your head? Yeah, exactly, right? Probably not very, not very many. Um, but noetic effects of sin has to do, it is related here through total depravity, are the effects of the fall. So the effects of the fall, we are morally corrupted, and this has to do with the effect of sin on our mind. On our mind. That's the, the study of the noetic effects of sin or the noetic effects of the fall. What has sin done, not just to my spirit or soul, but to my ability to actually think? That's what it has to deal with. And in our day of mental health, where mental health is kind of the, the hot word for everything, and there's all sorts of things like this, we have to really reckon with the scriptures. What do they say about the effects of sin on the mind? This is a hugely practical area of study. But now we're narrowing it down. We're going to narrow it down, not to the broad, we're not going to talk about the broad category of noetic effects. We're narrowing it down more specifically to this question on discernment. Are believers given spiritual discernment? First answer is yes. Yes. Yes, in one sense, it is a gift, and in another sense, it's something we all have. For instance, 
Uh, some of you may be gifted in hospitality, the biblical uh, gift or practice of hospitality. But all of us are called to be what? Hospitable. God gifts teachers to the church. Some people are teachers or pastors. He gifts those to the church. That is a gift. But all of you must teach, don't you? All of you must. You have to. If you are going to share the gospel, you are teaching. You see? So in one sense, it's a gift. It's another sense, we all must do. 1 Corinthians 12.10 mentions the ability to distinguish between spirits. That's the gift part. 1 John 4.1, John the Apostle writes, and he urges everybody, he's urging them not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And so, 1 Corinthians 12 is... 1 John 4, 1 would be an example of all of our collective responsibility to test the spirits. So at the very least, we can say is spiritual discernment, something everybody has the capacity to do, and responsibility, and some are better at it than others. So we can summarize that. Everybody has the capacity, responsibility, some are better at it than others. Due to perhaps God's gifting or some other aspects. Now, the questioner said they felt that it led them to being judgmental or having a critical spirit. Is this tied to the noetic effects of sin? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. When we become critical or judgmental, this is what happens when discernment when we become critical or judgmental, this is what happens when discernment is unaccompanied by equal or greater measures of love. When discernment is unaccompanied by equal or greater measures of love, the result is a distorted, inaccurate view of others, since the thing we're seeing is colored by our own sin. Maybe I should say what biblical discernment is. How about that? Let's do that. This will be helpful. Biblical discernment is being able to sense or determine the nature of a thing as God sees it. So biblical discernment is being able to sense or determine the nature of a thing as God sees it and respond to it in a God-glorifying manner. And respond to it in a God-glorifying manner. Why do I add that? Because demons could sense exactly who Jesus was before anybody else could. They knew that spirit. That's the spirit of the Most High. And he's here. But they did not respond to him in a God-glorifying manner, did they? So, it's being able to sense or determine the nature of a thing and respond to it, or to see it as God sees it and respond to it in a God-glorifying manner manner. And so in this sense, we grow in our ability to discern accurately, much like a child grows in their ability to discern danger. Children discern things all the time, don't they? And they're quite comical when they do. Sometimes they get it right. Good job. They exercise that discernment. And other times they're scared of things they shouldn't be scared of, aren't they? Maybe they're scared of 
of a loud car horn, and the baby cries, they get scared, or, or something else of that nature. Or you have a child who, who wants to eat something or touch something that they shouldn't touch. We had a church member years ago tell one of my children that uh, they, they were eating Nutella, and our children asked, what is that you know, brown thing you're eating? And they said, poop. And I had to say, no, don't say that. You can't tell them that. They're not going to understand you're joking. And sure enough, that week, one of our children tried to grab poop. And it was bad. It was bad. They were saved from the disaster. But they lacked discernment. They lacked discernment, right? And so this is importantly practical. If you're a new believer, let's say three years or less, a new believer, the Bible calls you a spiritual baby. You say, that's a bad thing. I don't want to be a baby. No, it's not. It's a good thing. We love babies, don't we? They're cute and cuddly and squishy. We love babies. We need babies, don't we? Babies are wonderful, and they need care. And so KBC, if you look at a new believer, you need to be super patient with them because scripturally, you lack discernment if you're a new believer. That's not a bad thing. That's just a stage of development. You lack discernment. And you can depend on your older, more mature believers, hopefully, not like an older brother and sister, but like an older mother and father who will not lead you into trouble, but who will help you discern accurately. And so if you're a new believer, you're a spiritual baby. Your discernment will grow in time. And we, KBC, should be patient with those who struggle with discernment. Nobody's born again with perfect theology. Nobody's born again reading all the best of whatever. We need to be patient with those who are newer. Maybe you're in the four-plus-year mark to eight-year mark of being a Christian. You're, you're like a young child or teenager. Now, I'm not worried necessarily that you'll fall in a pool and drown or stick your finger in a light socket or wander in the middle of the street. Not super worried about that. But you will still do things that are unwise or foolish. You lack, perhaps, spiritual foresight to see how your beliefs, how your practices, how your habits will impact things later that's detrimental to you. You see? You're growing you still have more. And perhaps you've been a believer for a very long time. Maybe you're a pastor. No matter how long you've been a believer, never leave the Word of God. Always, always tune your senses to the Scriptures, to the Bible, and it will be a sure anchor to your soul. The more mature we get as Christians, the more skilled we should be at discerning. Discernment, no matter how old or young you are, when it is devoid of love, will be critical and ungodly. Or, discernment, if it's informed by worldly wisdom instead of by the scriptures, will yield inaccurate or unbiblical solutions. So it's something we should all strive to grow in. What's interesting in each of the passages on discernment, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 John 4, what's really interesting is both of those passages are followed immediately by an extended discourse in love. What comes after 1 Corinthians 12? 1 Corinthians 
13, which is the great love chapter. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude, right? Just this great love chapter. 1 John 4, right after he talks about this false teaching and discerning spirits. 1 John 4, 7, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And he finishes out the rest of 1 John 4 talking about love. Is that any accident? I think not. So discernment must always be accompanied by love to fulfill its biblical goal. Last one we'll look at, Philippians 1.9. That'll be up here on the screen. Philippians 1.9 puts these two things together. You'll see them together, side by side. Paul prays for the Philippians. Sorry, verse 9 through 11. He prays for the Philippians. He says this, And it is my prayer that your, here it is, love may abound more and more with knowledge and all what? discernment. You see that? I'm praying that your love would abound for each other more and more with knowledge, accompanied by knowledge, and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that's biblical discernment. Excellent, excellent question. Let's close with a meditation on the sovereignty of God over all of life. A meditation on the sovereignty of God over all of life. We saw in our reading Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the mighty Babylonian empire, learned this lesson about God's sovereignty the hard way. He thought he was in control, and he was. It's a mighty empire. And God taught him this lesson the hard way. Sometimes some of us have to learn this the hard way too. Let's read it again. Just this brief passage. Daniel 4, starting in verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Go down to verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I think one passage sums it up best. What does the sovereignty of God mean? What does it teach? What does the Bible describe? I think there's a scripture that just says it. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Amen. That sums it up. That's what it means to be sovereign, to be king. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases.
and none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. This is the universal testimony of Scripture. God does what he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, and all his ways are just, good, and true. And it doesn't mean we'll like it. It doesn't mean we have to agree. It just means we can know that he is good. And when we encounter this, we have to readjust our thinking rather than readjust our God. We have to constantly be on guard against fashioning God after our own likeness. God says in Psalm 50, you thought I was altogether like yourself. He rebukes him. God is nothing like us. And so when we ask questions like, does God desire this, X, or does God desire Y, or does God desire whatever thing we're talking about, We have to start here and work our way out. God does all that he pleases. If he wants something done, it will be done. And if he does not want something done, who can open when God has shut? Or who can shut what God has opened? None. So we see God's sovereignty in a few areas. I just want to give a fast survey. If you can get Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, I'll be there in a moment. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. But first we see God's sovereignty in creation. God creates. He decides to move. He creates. There's nothing. And boom, there's a world. There's existence. There's light. We see his sovereignty in creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We see his sovereignty in history, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Here's what it says. Think about history, the stream of history. I am God. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God guides the flow of history. He declares the end from the beginning. This is what prophecy is possible. Nations, he guides nations, Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. God guides nations. History, the wills of men. We see him sovereign over the wills of men. Genesis 20 With Abimelech, he says, I kept you from sinning against me. We see in Exodus 4, him tell, uh, God tell Moses regarding Pharaoh that he's going to harden his heart. And then the Exodus narrative unfolds with the ten plagues and strokes of Egypt, and that's exactly what God does. We see the Proverbs say, He turns the heart of the king wherever he wills. The book of Joshua says, The Lord, Joshua 11, verse 20 says, The Lord hardened the hearts of the Canaanite kings to do battle against Israel that he might destroy them. Lest we think it ended with Pharaoh, Joshua eleven twenty. God is sovereign over the wills of men. 
God is sovereign over sin. He is in control. He reigns over evil and sin. I'd encourage you to look at the book of Job to begin to see that. His whole family stripped from him. All his goods, some through natural disaster, some through murder. Over it, God says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We learn from the book of Job that Satan is always on a leash. Whether by permission or other means, he can do nothing without God's hand letting it happen. Peter learned what this meant, God's sovereignty over the wills of men very well and over sin. Luke twenty-two thirty-one records what had to be a life-changing sentence for Peter. Jesus told him, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. See that? Satan, Satan has asked for you, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. God is sovereign over sin. We know what Peter would go and do, don't we? He would go and deny Jesus at his hour of need, but Jesus prayed for him. Why did Peter repent and not Judas? I would suggest it's because that phrase right there, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Even the cross of Christ the greatest evil done in history, Acts 4, 27 to 28, says all of that took place according to God's predestined plan, including the actors, not just the action, but the actors themselves, Pontius Pilate, Herod, all named. Acts 4, 27 and 28. God is sovereign over evil and sin. God is sovereign over life and death. Revelation chapter 1 gives us that picture who has the keys of death and Hades? Jesus. Who has the keys of life and death? The scriptures overwhelmingly from beginning to end say Jesus or God. Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount. A difficult truth, but a truth nonetheless. He said not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. Not a sparrow will fall apart from God's sovereign hand. This isn't theoretical, but actual. You could ask in Acts chapter 12. We're not going to read it, but Acts chapter 12, you have two apostles put side by side. James is murdered and killed. Peter is set free miraculously, isn't he? Why one and not the other? God worked miraculously through an angel, through divine means, and rescued Peter. But he let James be martyred because God has the keys of life and death. Fascinating what Peter would later write. That wasn't lost on Peter. Listen to what Peter would, li would write in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. 1 Peter 3, 17. Listen to how Peter writes and now encourages the church after having lived it. His friend. This is what he says, 1 Peter 3, 17. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good. What's the rest say? If that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Because he knows there will be times that God wills it. Because he lost a friend when God willed it. Fascinating. I asked my children when we went through that in family worship, who did, who got it better, James or Peter? Who had the better deliverance? And they thought for a second. They started to say, Pete, oh, wait, James. James got the better deal on that one, didn't he? He got to go home. Praise God. God is sovereign over life and death. It's just breathtaking, the testimony of Scripture here. He's sovereign over creatures and animals. The Scriptures describe him calling forth great fish to follow Jonah, opening the mouth of a donkey, closing the mouth of lions and Daniel, bringing forth frogs, flies, insects to inflict judgment on Egypt, and much more. We could examine many areas that God's sovereignty touches. I just cite these many to show you we would all affirm God's sovereignty, maybe with gritted teeth, in in these areas. We would all affirm that, yet when we get to to this doctrine of salvation, we want to put the brakes on and say God isn't sovereign over salvation. Man has that final say. I would say that goes against the whole thread of Scripture, explicit and implicit. And so we do struggle with this, but it is the testimony of the Scriptures. Here's what this doesn't mean, briefly. This doesn't mean, if God is sovereign over salvation as well, as I have suggested over the past weeks, that He absolutely is from start to finish. This does not mean any number of the errors that we throw up there. This does not mean we ever just put up our hands and say, well, if it's predestined, then it doesn't matter what I do. That's a grave error. It doesn't say, if, or we should never say, if it's predestined, I can do whatever I want, or it doesn't matter if I tell them the gospel, or it doesn't matter if I go and love people, or it doesn't matter if I do blank, because it's just going to happen. That's foolishness, unbiblical, and sinful. I have never taught or said anything of that nature, nor would I ever endorse such a notion. The scriptures are clear. We have to say a few things. We must affirm that God is sovereign over all things. That's what the scriptures say. We must also affirm, even if we don't understand, that I must preach the gospel to all people in order for them to be saved. And we must affirm You must respond in faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You are not a robot. You see, you may not understand these things, but whatever your beliefs can never cause you to water any of those down. God is sovereign. Preach to everybody. You must respond in faith and repentance. That's what the teachers, the scriptures teach, and we must believe them. So what then does this doctrine of sovereignty do? Here's what it does. 
It undergirds our suffering. It strengthens our hearts to endure whatever may befall us. It undergirds our suffering and strengthens our hearts. God's sovereignty is meant to function like an anchor. It's meant to function like an anchor that gives all the other promises of Scripture certainty and weight. That's what it's meant to do. Now, you might not lead with the sovereignty of God in tragedy. In fact, I would not suggest it. Somebody loses a child or, or suffers uh, maybe a traumatic injury or something of that nature. Maybe you're not going to lead with God's in control. True, not timely. It might not be what you lead with in tragedy, but this doctrine gives the other truths weight and substance. a sure foundation from which to offer comfort and hope. If you try to offer comfort or hope without the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, it's kind of like trying to push a car on sand. You're going you're gonna to push sincerely with all your might, trying to offer hope and comfort, but you've got nothing to stand on. Your feet will give out from you every time. That's the way the doctrine of God's sovereignty is meant to be. It is that foundation, that platform. So when you offer comfort, when you offer hope, it has substance and meaning. What does it mean to say, just trust God if God has nothing to do with what happened? What does it mean to say, just trust God? He's trying his best. Well, his best failed me here. How do I know it's not going to fail me again? Just have faith. Faith to do what? He's not ultimately in control. He's just trying his best. See, the sovereignty of God gives those things substance. Trust God. Why? Because he is working and ruling and reigning, and it hurts, but there is a plan. You will be victorious, and one day every tear will be gone, and not until that day. That gives it substance and hope. God is faithful. He is just, and he is with us. Lead with those truths, and let sovereignty give you that firm foundation. Let's close with Romans 7, and here's what we're going to see at the end. I love this passage, Romans 7, 9 through 12. And I just want this doctrine to sink in. I want it to grant you comfort for all of life's hardships. Wherever you came in here with, this is the end because God is sovereign. This is a picture of the end. We know it's going to come to pass because he is mighty to save. Check this out. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing 
and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father,